Thanks be to God. Well, happy Easter again, everyone. It is uh, wonderful to be with you, um, and I'm so glad that you joined us. We are skipping ahead in our study of Mark from chapter 3 all the way to the end in chapter 16, talking about new life. And don't we often sort of daydream about that? Not even in necessarily Christian terms or even spiritual terms, but just that we we want life to be different than it is. We think, I wish I didn't have to get up and go to work today. I wish I didn't have to drive the same boring car in the same traffic to the same job that I don't really enjoy and then go to lunch with the same group of coworkers. Now we would love to do all of those things. I wish I could get up and go to work to an actual office. I wish I could drive anywhere. I wish I could invite all of those same coworkers over to a barbecue. Life is very different. We have a new life, but we have longings in this sort of new experience of life. And most of us, however, would trade life then before lockdown for the life we have now. But were we really deeply, fundamentally happy? Don't we often have kind of that that hazy baseline discontent that we think something else has to be out there? Maybe as Rachel prayed, we experienced that longing, that deep-seated longing within us. And we're not even sure where it comes from and certainly not how to answer it. Well, the Gospel of Mark, Easter, tells us that we're longing for new life and that new life is on offer, that God has intruded into our world with a love that is so invigorating and so creative that encountering it will inevitably change us. It will guide us, though not force us, into new life. Easter tells us that though humanity may kill God's love, it cannot keep it dead and buried. Because Jesus has risen in history, and he has risen in love and he has risen for you. That's a big promise. That's a lot of hope. But the passage that we read, it doesn't really sound quite so promising. Verse 6 says, he is not here. He is risen. Enormous news. The absolute climax of the story. And then two verses later, it says that the women said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That is, that's a bummer of an ending. It's the Sopranos smash to black ending. There's no resolution. And it seems that many people reading Mark early on didn't like the ending either because they decided to kind of tack on a number of verses to tidy things up, to answer what happened next. And if you were reading this passage in an actual Bible, you'd see a notation that the rest of the book isn't in the oldest manuscripts, which interpretation means that Mark likely didn't write the rest of the book. 
It was probably tacked on to make things a bit more orderly and a bit more complete. As if to say to Mark, come on, you can't end your book that way. You can't say they were afraid and then fade to black. How does that address the very practical concerns in my life? How does that make the resurrection hopeful? Well, these two Marys go to the tomb and they want hope. And they have very practical concerns as well. One of them is who's going to roll away the stone. This has always been rather curious to me. Were they really expecting someone to roll away this large stone for them? Were they expecting to come to the tomb and someone there would be standing there that would be not only strong enough, but willing to roll away the the stone? And what are they doing bringing spices, which were used to anoint the body immediately after death? It's far too late for that. These are practical but strange questions. And I think Mark is letting us know that these women were still in a state of confusion, if not in shock. Their friend, their rabbi, teacher, the supposed Messiah had been brutally murdered right in front of their eyes, and maybe they're not yet thinking clearly. The only reason that they could be heading to the tomb is an act of desperate devotion. And what they find isn't comforting, it's frightening. It's a very unsatisfying ending. Maybe Mark sort of needs an editor, you know, an editor to tell him, hey, Mark, I really like where you're going with this. There's a lot of good stuff in here. But you can't leave your readers hanging like that. That is not going to sell. It's not going to compel anyone. That doesn't give hope. Or maybe he's giving us something that's far more sophisticated. He's giving us something that actually requires a response, our response. Maybe Mark isn't just telling us about events, but he's actually inviting us into them. And perhaps we should be asking, what would we do if we were these women? If we were there at the empty tomb? And that's really where we're left on Easter morning. I mean, I know that we know the rest of the story. We have Acts, we have the rest of the New Testament. But if we take Mark for what Mark is, and we insert our plays, play ourselves into the narrative at the end of Mark's gospel, he's inviting us into the story to, in a sense, complete it. Mark, like the other gospel writers, he doesn't lay out a point-by-point proof of the resurrection. He simply proclaims it as fact. He doesn't give us proof. He doesn't give us theological meaning. He doesn't even give us a clear application of what to do now. He simply says he is risen. He is not here. Is this an unsatisfying ending or is it the kind of ending that is perfect for Easter? That it's an invitation. It's an invitation to take a step of faith to consider how 
resurrection might bring change into our relationships that feel impossibly broken. How Jesus' love that refuses to be held down might bring new life to the places that feel like dead ends in our story. Do you remember when we read a number of weeks ago, the opening verse of Mark? Do you remember what it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? The beginning of the good news. There's more indeed to be written. He is not here. He is risen. So what are you prepared to do? What are you going to do now? The resurrection is about finding life where you expect to find death. It's about finding courage where you expect to find fear, finding forgiveness where you expect to find rejection. But that's not what the women felt, not yet at least. They felt terribly afraid. Well, even though Mark is the oldest gospel, it was still written after these events. Do you think that he would have written it this way, with this fade to black, ambiguous ending, if the women had actually stayed immobilized, stayed paralyzed in their fear, if the disciples didn't ultimately overcome their fear and go and find Jesus where he said he would be? Mark is an insurrectionist, revolutionary document. You could get killed for copying it, for distributing it. There's no way he ends his gospel with they were afraid if everyone who was going to read it knew that that really was the end of the story. See, he's encouraging his present-day readers. Even these women were scared. Even the disciples were terrified. Even Peter was paralyzed. You see, life change is always scary. Opening ourselves up to something new is always terrifying because it's unknown. We can't control the outcome. The empty tomb was something that startled them. They trembled. They were bewildered, but upon reflection, it changed them. It gave them new life. It made the impossible possible. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. See, the resurrection doesn't work just in the abstract. It's not a a theological construct. It's not a metaphor. But it's an invitation to be personally involved in something revolutionary. Jesus provides the power, but the women had to go tell the male disciples that he was not in the tomb. The disciples had to overcome their fear and go to find Jesus in Galilee. And you and I have to take hold of the Easter truth and live in response. It's as if the way that Mark ends his gospel implies that our lives are the interpretation of the event. 
the commentary that Mark withholds in chapter 16 really takes place as we comment on the story with the way that we respond with our lives. The women, the disciples, Peter, you and I, we have to get up and walk. We have to go to Galilee to meet Jesus. If you want to encounter Jesus, in other words, you don't simply believe in the resurrection, but you follow where it leads. And if you want to follow Jesus, you go where he leads. And where is that? If you go to Galilee, if you go to encounter Jesus, what do you encounter? Who do you meet? Well, the angel tells these women, and I love this, there's so much in just two words here. The angel tells these women, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter. Is he mentioned because he's the presumptive leader now that everything is fallen apart? Maybe he'll know what to do. It's not because he's the de facto leader of the early church. I think it's because he's its most infamous failure. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, he's going before you into Galilee. You see, like all of the disciples that have departed from Jesus, they're gathered in fear, cowering. But none more than Peter is going to be covered in shame and embarrassment and disgrace for denying Jesus three times. He probably wants life to be different, to be end, to be done with fear, to be done with shame, to be done with his disgrace. He wants life to be different. He wants new life, but it seems impossible. Go and tell the disciples and Peter, he is not here. He is risen. For some of the disciples, maybe the resurrection would feel like something of a vindication of their trust in Jesus. For his family members, members that were among the disciples, it would be a tearful but joyous reunion. But for Peter, going to meet Jesus in Galilee would be different because it would mean him opening himself up to pain. It would mean him facing his lack of faith and his denial three times of friendship with Jesus. Meeting Jesus in Galilee would make Peter painfully, nakedly aware of his gigantic failure and his abandonment of his friend Jesus. Wouldn't we all, in those circumstances, be expecting a stinging rebuke, a demotion, if not utter rejection? But when Mark says that Jesus, or the angel told him, he's going before you into Jerusalem, it doesn't mean that just that Jesus will get there first, that he will precede you. This isn't just a planned rendezvous. This is him going ahead to receive them and to recommission them after their collective failure. Instead of being 
ashamed of those who had been ashamed of him, Jesus invites them to begin anew. He offers them embrace instead of rejection. And this is what makes the God of Easter so radically different, so unique, so new. You see, we only understand real transformative love. We only come to believe it viscerally when we receive it in the midst of undeniable failure. When we know that no one else would have loved me quite like this in these circumstances. Peter got to see, he got to experience a love that can't be extinguished by failure. He got to see, he got to experience a love that can't be extinguished by death. It was certainly scary for him to go, and it's scary for us to move into new life because we can't control it. We don't know everything that's going to happen. It may be painful to go, but it's in Galilee where Peter can learn that wherever he may find himself, however he may fail, that his life is now constantly capable of being opened up to God's creative, revolutionary grace. And all of us this morning are invited to take all of our failures, all of our questions, all of our incompleteness, all of the impossibilities of life, and to carry them to Jesus in Galilee. Because he is not in the tomb, he is risen. And he stands ready to receive us and to embrace us. And that's the hope of resurrection. That's the hope of Easter. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would go with us into our collective Galilee as a church, that you would continue to walk with us in these confusing times into a future that is unknown. And for each of us individually, as roommates, as families, however we are gathered on the other side of our screens, I pray that you would be with us and that the fact that you are risen, the resurrection would give us resurrection hope in all of our lives today, this moment, this week. We pray that that would be so by the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now if you will, Rachel, um, 